All right. Thank you for joining me here on Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am the host today. Um, I've got to talk about some things that I've talked about in the past, but you know, again, some of these things are worth reiterating. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about critical race theory. I'm going to really explain where, frankly, where, what was the first example, one of the first examples of critical race theory. And, and so I'm going to get into that. But first, let me again begin by welcoming my, my Washington listening audience. It is, uh, it is great to be a part of your um, your radio market. I am very grateful to WPFW for allowing me to be a part of their lineup. Um, but I do, um, you know, I do ask that you support your uh, WPFW station and do so in the name of the show if you, uh, if you see fit to do so. <laughs> so again, I ask you to go to the pledge line. That's 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. Or go online to WPFWFM.org and follow the prompts to, uh, to make a donation to this fine radio station that provides me space. Look, I've got, uh, for those of you who are watching on, on my Facebook live stream, um, I've got my land back shirt on. You know, and look, we do need land restoration as Native people. And, and, I, and I've talked about this in the past. We can talk about reconciliation. We can talk about any number of, um, of things that, you know, patch up our, uh, our, our terrible histories together. But there's nothing that is more meaningful than restoration of our land and our autonomy. But when I talk about land back, though, you know, it isn't just about getting, you know, having land returned to us. It's about having space. So that's why I am so grateful to WPFW for giving me space on these airways. Because, look, talking to the, to the Washington listening audience is important. But let's face it, Washington, D.C. is where a lot of stuff happens that impacts us. And, and, you know, some of those things I talk about here, and I'm going to talk about some of those things, some of those things today. So, uh, look, if you're, if you're a, a D.C. resident and you know anybody who's involved in, uh, in the legislative function of that city or the executive function of that city or the judicial function of that city, be aware of some of the things that, that I'm talking about today. Look, I've talked about critical race theory before, and, and I know that is like a, a dirty word, or actually, I'm not even sure it's a dirty word. I think, I think it's a word that, frankly, the right has really taken and run with that, and they've run with this idea that, that you know, critical race theory is about making white people feel bad and, and that they need to oppose critical race theory. They, they've used the, the opposition to critical race theory to you know, to, to run elections on. I think the governor of Virginia ran on an, on an anti-critical race theory platform and, and won. I mean, and, and he beat the incumbent. The, the, so the Republican running on critical race theory beat the Democrat who was an incumbent. I mean, I, look, and that's right there in your backyard there, folks. So, so let's talk a little bit about what critical race theory is. And to be clear, critical race theory is not taught in schools. Now, the idea that any history that is unpleasant, especially history, U.S. history that involves race and racism. Anybody who's going to take that and say, well, see that teaching critical race theory. No, here's what critical race theory is. And, and look, this is the way it has always been um, packaged. It's the way it's always been defined. It is the intersection of race 
not even race, but racism and law. Because we can, we can argue whether race even exists. You know, that, that's a construct, right? And we, we can debate whether race exists as a, as a means to really separate people. But there's no question that racism exists. Because all you have to do is believe in racial disparities to adopt practices that are, that are racist by design. And again, we can't talk about the intersection of racism and law and policy and practice if we don't talk about what racism means. And racism is not simply, you know, the, you know, it, it, it is not simply the animosity between races, if they, if they exist at all. What racism is, is it's about power and it's about superiority, and it's about one group believing that they can assert superiority or project inferiority upon a group of people based on, on their perception of race. So, I mean, look, when we talk about racism, you know, most people can, you know, understand, you know, that, you know, slavery, chattel slavery was a racist practice. And most people can accept that. Most people can accept that much of what Native people experienced in terms of the American genocide was racist. And, and it become, and, and the reason it's racist isn't just because it, it, it affords one group to assert superiority in law, practice, policy, military, violence against one group, but that it stays embedded. So when we talk about critical race theory, what we're talking about is this idea that this view of racism and this view of superiority of one group of people over another can not only just creep in or be implied or be affect the legislative process, but it can actually be the reason for the law. And it can be named in the law. Now, Native people are among the only people that when laws were enacted against us or, you know, regarding us that were actually named in the law. I mean, we, we look, when, when you do redlining, you know, you know, when you do adopt certain practices that, that are discriminating against black people, they don't say, well, we're, we're, we're doing this law to discriminate against black people. You just know, you know what gerrymandering does, you know what redlining does, you know, you know, without writing it in terms of, you know, housing and, and, uh, and, uh, mortgages and that kind of stuff, you can create policy that never has to write it down to say, okay, we're going to discriminate. But when critical race theory, when this idea of racism and law intersect with relating to Native people, it's just straight up admitted. It's, it's not hidden at all. So what is the first example, not just of U.S. history, but, of, of, but really the first real prime example of the intersection of racism and law or practice or policy. Well, the doctrine of Christian discovery actually predates the overemphasis of race as a distinguishing characteristic that would lead to racism. But it still remains the first example of critical race theory. Now, in case you don't know what the doctrine of Christian discovery is, the doctrine of Christian discovery basically, and, and I could actually use Ruth Bader Ginsburg who actually cited the Doctrine of Christian Discovery in one of her rulings as part of her guiding principle, which was to say that 
the doctrine of Christian discovery gave the discovering nations of Europe the power to claim title. I mean, basically, which is under the doctrine of Christian discovery, the, the land title became vested in the sovereign. And by sovereign, she, she wasn't talking about us. She says, became vested in the sovereign. First, the discovering nations of Europe, then the United States and the, and the individual states. So she doesn't say how it becomes vested. She just says, just as a matter of law and practice and principle. And the doctrine of Christian discovery does become codified in law through a, a Supreme Court ruling in, in 1823 called Johnson v. McIntosh, where Chief Justice John Marshall details that the doctrine of Christian discovery enables the United States to, to claim title. I mean, he, he, he makes mention of certain things like the sovereignty of, uh, of, 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 of Indians was necessarily diminished upon discovery. So just a mere, <laughs> the mere occurrence of white people saying, I, I, I'm on this land now, the mere, dis, the mere, again, occurrence of white people seeing Native people diminished us. So this idea of being discovered by white people would actually, just by the occurrence, according to just Chief Justice John Marshall, would diminish our sovereignty. Because the, the structures of sovereignty as it relates to the monarchs, as it relates to the, one of the biggest lies ever told, that it's a God-given power, that a ruling family or ruling families would be entrusted by God to rule over other people. And of course, you know, sovereignty becomes less about the God-given power than, than just the, the ability to assert dominance over other people. So the doctrine of Christian discovery would actually be not just the churches, but the nation, the Christian nations of Europe, their justification for slavery, for taking Africans into slavery. First, to take them back to Portugal, and then ultimately lead to the, to the transcontinental uh, slave trade. That's, that's all written in. Because the, the, the first papal bull that is cited as part of that, you know, that Christian doctrine of discovery was not related to us. It wasn't related to the, to the Western Hemisphere. It was related to Portugal's, um, Portugal going into Africa taking land, taking people, uh, you know, um, enslaving people, murdering people, taking their stuff, I mean, their, their land, their resources, their, you know, whatever, uh, whatever things of value that Portugal could take. And it was all author authorized by the church, which had a, you know, and uh, remember, there was no Protestant church in, in, the, 14, in, the, in the 1400s. There hadn't been no, any separation between the, you know, the Anglicans and, and, and the Roman Catholic Church. All the nations of Europe, primarily, their, their governing structures were tied almost directly to the church. So the, when the church um, established doctrine, that doctrine be, became law there. It becomes law in the United States when a dispute over, over lands that were leased from the Cherokee go before the, the Supreme Court. Well, actually, some was leased by the state and some was leased by, uh, by the, uh, from the Cherokees. And it goes, it, you know, it goes into, uh, into a Supreme Court ruling uh, known, as, uh, known as Johnson v. McIntosh. And that's when the doctrine of Christian discovery 
becomes codified in law. And it solves much bigger problems for the United States than a dispute between Johnson and McIntosh. It solves the, the entire land title problem for the United States because it asserts that the discovering nations of Europe could take title to land. And, and that native people, the indigenous people, that we, that it, it argues that we never really possessed the land because that wasn't our construct. And so white folks, the, the Christian nations of Europe, by virtue of being the Christian nations of Europe, could assert possession of land title. Now, this is, a, this is among the most racist doctrines that the world has ever known. And in fact, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the third affirmation of that UN Declaration, and I have a, have a copy here for those of you who are, who are you know, watching at home. Um, this is the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And the third affirmation of that document says, affirming further that all doctrines, policies, and practices based on or advocating su superiority of peoples or individuals on the basis of national origin or racial, religious, ethnic, or cultural differences are racist, scientifically false, legally invalid, morally condemnable, and socially unjust. So this is the international community. And, and again, this was passed in 2007. The United States voted against it. <laughs> Canada voted against it. New Zealand voted against it. Australia voted against it. But have since um, expressed support um, for the aspirations of the agreement. But this passage is, is among the only, or the most direct international um, condemnations of the doctrine of Christian discovery. And it doesn't name it by, you know, it doesn't list it by name, but when you understand what it's, what it's condemning, it is clearly condemning the idea that the Christian nations of Europe could assert land title away from native people. So, and, and the thing about the doctrine of Christian discovery, it wasn't just about the land. It, it was about asserting jurisdiction. It was about asserting sovereignty and, and, and power and authority. It, it viewed native people on, on par with, 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 with the animals. And look, being compared to an animal is not a terrible thing, you know, as far as I'm concerned as a native person. But if you, as a human being, look at yourself as so superior to other life that, that you know, dehumanizing another human population to the point that you look down upon us almost as the animals. Look, the, um, in Johnson v. McIntosh, the Justice, just, Chief Justice John Marshall basically said Native people had the mere right to occupancy. We, we had the, the mere right to exist on a piece of land, not to hold title to it. That's what, that's what a white man in a black robe ruled in, 18, uh, you know, in 1823 based on church dogma. Now, the crazy part is it is real difficult to get um, a, a modern court to accept um, international doctrines as, um, as, as being admissible or having any force of law. But in 1823, the, the Supreme Court had no problem using a church doctrine. In spite of all that separation of church and state stuff that you've, that you've heard so much about, they had no problem accepting a church doctrine 
um, as the basis for a, uh, a legal principle uh, involving uh, claiming land title. And, and again, that's 1823. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited the doctrine of Christian discovery in a case against the Oneidas in, in 2005. In 2005. Of course, that's two years before the, uh, the, the United Nations would condemn it because it took so long to, to come up with a UN declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples that enough nations could, uh, could accept. I'll, and I will say, only four voted against it. You know what? The US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Everybody else voted for it. A few nations abstained. And, and again, you can't help but believe that part of the, the problem that nations like the United States had with this is because of their own activity and their own claims to land title, their own claims to superiority over Native people. This, you know, and, and, and honestly, this affirmation in the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples essentially is a condemnation of the whole idea of critical race theory. That, that laws could be passed specifically asserting superiority over another people based on race or, or religion or ethnicity. And, you know, and, and look, while it says um, that it, it's condemning any, you know, uh, any, you know um, doctrine, policy, or practice based on or advocating superiority of peoples. Obviously, you can't have superiority if you don't have inferiority. So the whole idea of advancing or advocating superiority means that you are also advocating the inferiority of a people beneath you. So we cannot really have a conversation about critical race theory if we don't talk about its origins. And the origin story of critical race theory, the idea of intersecting racism with law, doesn't start with law. It starts with church doctrine, church doctrine that becomes law. It becomes the guiding principle of the monarchs of Europe. And then it becomes codified in law in the United States. And, and you know what? Again, it's the rationale. It's the justification for slavery, the slave trade, the murder of indigenous people, the genocide, the land theft. And, and of course, let me, again, I, when I say slavery, I don't want people to, to think that I'm not talking about the enslavement of Native people because Native people, the first transatlantic vessel <laughs> carrying uh, you know, a bounty of slaves was not from um, Africa to the Western Hemisphere. It was from the Caribbean back to Spain. It was, it was one of Columbus's return voyages. So the slavery starts with the indigenous people in this continent. Now, already, slavery was already being you know, well-established uh, in terms of grabbing um, the African slave trade. Originally, it was between Africa and Europe. But as far as transatlantic um, you know, slave trade, you know, the, the first boat of slaves, boatload of slaves, were indigenous people. And, and many of them, young girls. Because it wasn't just slave for labor. It was, slave, it, it was sex slave slavery. So, I mean, and again, it's based on this idea that you could have the church authorize the enslavement, bind them to perpetual servitude. Is, is, that's, what, that's essentially what the, what the Catholic Church said. That, you know, that this is what the Christian nations of the world 
could do to the Saracens of the world, the, the non-Christians. And in fact, if you were, if you were not a Christian, under the language of, uh, that came out of, uh, out of the Vatican, you were an enemy of Christianity. You, you, you couldn't just be non-Christian. You, if you weren't a Christian, you were the enemies of Christ. That, and, and that's the language that came out of, the, uh, out of the, the Catholic Church. So once you have that established, once you've got the doctrine of Christian discovery codified in U.S. law, and again, 1823, the United States is still pretty young here. I mean, the Declaration of Independence is only 1776. So we're not talking about a terribly long time. This is less than 50 years, you know, and, and certainly less than 50 years after independence is um, not just declared, but really asserted. And, and, and it's asserted in just the midst of hypocrisy. So you talk about things like, you know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. You talk about we the people and, 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 and all of that stuff. And in, in the initial founding document of the United States, the Declaration of Independence, they refer to merciless Indian savages whose, you know, whose character of warfare, you know, was about killing women and children. I mean, this is, this is how even the founding documents of the United States were laced with racism. Now, so, so after the, you, know, you have Johnson v. McIntosh and you have this declaration that the United States can claim land just based on their Christian background and their Christian origin, you know, having come from the nations of Europe, then what? Well, you still have native people. So you have to, you have to justify not just the murder and the, and the genocide, but how you do it. One of the early laws, and I, and I don't really have the date off the top of my head, uh, that was passed was called the Civilization Act. This was, again, a, a prime example of critical race theory because it was a law passed specifically to denationalize and ethnically cleanse native people. I mean, ethnicity is not race. Ethnicity is about culture and belief and language and, and all the things that, that identify um, different cultures. So if you're going to pass a law that not only funds, but creates mechanisms for assimilation, that's racist. That, that actually is one of the things that, that the UN Declaration uh, of indigenous peoples, the rights of indigenous peoples, condemns. It is a policy practice, um, uh, you know, a, a doctrine, policy, and practice based on an advocating superiority of a people, based on, uh, you know, on, on race, on ethnicity, on na nation of origin. So this Civilization Act, which initially was about, and, and it wasn't a lot of money in, in the beginning, it's a, it's a young country, but, it, but it, it ends up laying the foundation, and it ends up being the funding mechanism, administration after administration, that would lead to the building and the creating and the authorization of, of residential schools. So let's talk about what residential schools were, because I've talked about them before. Residential schools were prisons that children got sent to. So why would children get sent to a prison? Well, the first thing that you have to do in order to take a child You've, you've got to condemn the parents, specifically the mothers. Residential schools were possible because the United States could look at a native woman and say, you are unfit to be a mother. 
you are incapable. You are, you are not worthy of having a child to raise. You're unfit. You're, you're somehow disabled. This again, this is about dehumanizing, you know, not just the men too, but you know, when you talk about children, you're really talking about taking children from their mothers, both parents, but, but their mothers and their community. And, and since many native territories were matrilineal in their societal structure, you were taking the children, not just from their mothers, but all of the women. So in order for residential schools to exist, you had to attack and commit a violent act against the women, indigenous women, which, you know, considering the rape culture and, and that, that little girls at nine or 10 were being subjected to sex, the sex slave trade by Christopher Columbus himself, the idea that you would, that you would first enslave human traffic Native women, and then you will condemn them. You will look at them and say, you are incapable of raising children. You're unfit. You are somehow disabled, mentally disabled. You are deficient. That's how children were grabbed. I mean, we, we sometimes picture this as, as children being ripped away from communities, but you rip them away from their mothers and from the women of a community. The men too, but, but primarily in most native cultures, the women had the first and most direct impact. The reason we have matrilineal societies is because it was the women's responsibility to, to instill the culture and all of the identity into our children. Before, you know, by the time puberty is reached, where, you know, where the, the girls are, remain primarily um, to be trained and, and educated and, uh, and cared for by the, the mothers, and the boys would eventually start doing more um, stuff, you know, for, you know, geared towards manhood. Um, it, was all, it was all the mothers. There was almost no distinguishing between, you know, the, the boys and the girls, um, at those early ages. So those, those children were ripped from the women. And then what happens? Then what happens is those children are also regarded as mentally deficient. Uh, somehow, you know, like, there's, like there's mental retardation specific, specifically associated with just the idea of being Native. So this is a racial designation of mental capacity that, and it happened here in New York State. Not just, this isn't just a federal thing. I mean, the Thomas Indian School here on the Cattaraugus Territory of Seneca Nation. In the beginning, the Thomas Indian School received much of its funding through, from the state, from the educational, uh, the education department. It wasn't actually called that, but, but, but from state education. But at some point, when a much larger investment came into the Thomas Indian School and, and that whole system is when that responsibility got taken from education, separated from the educating children and was picked up by the Department of Charities. The, the, and the Department of Charities, their function was doing things like mental asylums. The state regarded all Native children as 
irredeemable, you know, beyond um, having enough intellect to be brought up as worthwhile citizens of the United States. They were, they were regarded as irredeemable. They were regarded as mentally deficient. Those schools weren't called schools. They were called asylums. They were, they were considered mental asylums. So first you condemned the women and the, and, and the parents generally, but specifically the women. Then you say your children are substandard. That's the fi- and that exists for a hundred years, up until the the, the mid nineteen hundreds, the twentieth century. The last residential school wasn't closed until the until the nineteen seventies. What happens during that hundred year period of residential schools? The largest period of land loss Native people ever experienced happened during that that, that same period of, of residential schools when women were already condemned as being unfit as parents, and the children were already being condemned as somehow mentally handicapped, just by nature of their, of their ethnicity and their race. Just by that. Not because of, of any you know, physical deficiencies or mental deficiencies that, that could be tested or evaluated, but just by virtue of being Native. Largest period of land loss Native people experience in the United States and Canada. But it wasn't just land that was lost. These schools were geared towards, the the policy was kill the Indian, save the man. And every child experienced some level of themselves being killed. Some were were killed outright. Some were murdered. Others died because of a neglect or or, or trying to escape these these prisons. Died because of, uh, uh, of a lack of health care or nutrition. But every child was killed some. Every child had some part of them that was ripped away, that was stomped out. Their language, their appearance, any semblance of their, of their culture, was, they were punished and tortured for it for 100 years. And all of it, of course, it predates the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, but all of it is critical race theory. It is racist laws and policies, racist societal structures created targeting one specific people, Native people. Although we're many, we're, we're many different cultures, but we were lumped in together. And in fact, it didn't matter. These schools... We're grabbing children from everywhere because because indoctrination and, you know, and a system of conformity was what these schools were all about. Learn to walk straight, learn to sit straight, learn to talk English, learn, learn the passages of the Bible, heavy, heavy dosages of the Bible. But just like those who were enslaved were, were given abridged versions of the Bible so as not to feel empowered by the language or the, you know the passages of the Bible. And some of them are empowering. Some of them do condemn the systems of government and that kind of stuff. But much of it doesn't. Much of it doesn't. 
So therein lies the problem. So this critical race theory exists for all of this time. Since the doctrine of Christian discovery. But it doesn't, you know, a lot of times when we look at critical race theory today, we look at it as the legacy of racist laws. We look at it as the, the legacy of, of so many atrocities committed against people by the dominant culture. So we, we look at it as if it's the lingering effects of slavery, the lingering effects of a genocide that, that occurred. But it doesn't look at the continuing of, um, laws that, that are passed every day, still today. Native people are still experiencing. Look, in, in, in uh, 1988, when the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act was passed, and yes, I have to go here, it too is an example of critical race theory. It too is a law passed specifically to assert superiority advocate superiority and control over a specific race of people. That's what it does. There was no, there, there, there was no pre-existing law, statutory framework, that gave the federal government or the state governments control over native gaming. None. There, were, there was no law. So they pulled it out, out of thin air. So they pull it out of thin air. And they create the authority. They just say they have the authority. I mean, there's no transfer of authority from Native people to the federal government. And the federal government just doesn't just take the authority. They put the states in our business. They give the states. And they, in fact, they require that there is shared regulatory authority through a gaming compact between the Native people and the, state, and, and the states. So, and these gaming compacts are usually over 10, sometimes 20 years. And in fact, now some of them are being uh, considered perpetual compacts. Locked in long-term for forever, perpetually. Giving the states levels of control. And oftentimes the states pressure the native gaming enterprises into giving the money through some form of revenue sharing, where the state allegedly gives a concession in exchange for that revenue sharing. Oftentimes, they give nothing or, or little at all, or they give something that looks like something on paper, like, like what the Senecas have experienced here in, uh, in, with, with New York State, that really has no value. It has no value. There's no exclusivity. The state was, was free to compete against the Senecas with their lottery, with the racetracks that they turned into casinos, eventually passing uh, uh, an amendment of, to their constitution allowing the state to, to, to authorize direct competition against native gaming. So there's no ex exclusivity. And yet, while they claim to be giving exclusivity and get paid for it, they stand as the biggest competitor you know, to the Seneca Nation, and frankly, any, the Oneidas and the Mohawks. 
What other gaming takes place in in the in 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 about where native territories are? Lotteries, racetracks, now sports betting. Sports betting that is now being proliferated in, in such a large degree, to such a large degree, that you can you can do it on your phone. This is critical race theory in modern time, today. Look, we oftentimes, when we think about critical race theory, we look at things like um, the sentencing guidelines uh, being more strict for crack cocaine than the cocaine that the white people primarily were, uh, were abusing. And, and we know that crack cocaine was introduced into, into the urban communities, black communities, and uh, peoples of color communities, so they could punish them more strictly for crack cocaine, even though it's still just cocaine. And so, I mean, that's an example. But even then, they, they make the enforcement based on the cocaine, the crack cocaine versus, you know, you know pure cocaine. They never say, okay, we're going to just sentence black people to, higher, to longer sentences. No, they, they never come. But when, when you pass laws based on race, on, on native people, it, we're, we're mentioned right in the statutes. So this is the reality. I mean, this is the reality. And look, when, when the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act was passed, it in of itself was a, was a racist law. It was a law based on asserting control, dominance, superiority over Native people. Basically, we were being regarded as incompetent. The claim was they needed to pass this law to protect us. I mean, they even hinted that the protection wasn't just against um, you know, shady investors or organized crime, but that somehow it would protect us against overly aggressive states. And it doesn't. I mean, it, it doesn't. It, the language, you know, doesn't really even say much of that. Other than it says the, the states can't tax us. But then there's no enforcement. So the law is racist, but then the administration of the law is equally racist. IGRA, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, has existed for over 30 years. And in 30 years, some of the most basic questions have never been answered that are, that are problematic to Native people. They're not problematic for the states. And when we, as Native peoples, ask the Interior Department, look, would you review this? We think there's a problem with the compact here. We think there's a problem. The revenue sharing has, has now become illegal by the language of IGRA. And you know what the, the Interior Department says? They say, yeah, well, we'd rather not review that unless both parties, you and the state, ask us to review it. What? I mean, that's like telling the victim of a crime that they will not investigate that crime unless the accused agrees, unless the, the one who perpetrated the, the crime, allegedly, agrees to be investigated. Now, nah, unless both parties, unless both the, you know, the perpetrator and the victim want us to investigate it, we don't want it. We, we don't want to investigate it just based on the victim. You passed a law specifically altering our ability to do gaming. And when we, when we formally file a complaint and we, we ask you, look, just do your job. You say, yeah. We don't really want to do that. Unless the state asks us, we don't really want to do that. That is racist, folks. I mean, look, 
in the, in the case that the Senecas are battling right now with, with New York State, they actually got the National Indian Gaming Commission to do an investigation. And, and it's the craziest thing you ever heard because the investigation was not whether the state had violated IGRA. It was whether the Seneca Nation violated IGRA by allowing the state to have proprietary interest in, in, the, in the, their gaming operation. Now, look, there is a, a requirement in the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that requires that the gaming nation maintain the proprietary interest of their gaming operation. That's what it says. And the language there is to prevent, again, organized crime, shady investors, maybe vulture capitalists, or perhaps even management comp companies that say, oh, we'll come in and we'll run the casino for you. Well, this proprietary interest requirement is so that those third parties cannot take control of native gaming and assert control. And the three factors are whether the uh, third party has control of some control of the operation, any control of the operation, really, whether their relationship is, is a long term or not, an extended period of time. And that's not defined, but you know, you gotta assume that 10, 10 or 20 years is is a long term. And the third factor is whether they're getting paid an absorbent amount of money. New York State fits all of those, uh, those categories. They do have regulatory control. Why? Because IGRA gave it to them. The federal government gave them. In fact, they insisted that they have some. But because it is called for in the law, it's okay. Because the state can't be, the state cannot be judged for having a proprietary interest in, in native gaming because the law requires that they have some control and the law encourages long-term gaming compacts and the law allows for revenue sharing that will never be investigated by the Interior Department. And look, if you enter into a gaming compact with a revenue sharing uh, agreement that essentially can only be legal if the state gives something in exchange for the revenue sharing. If over a period of time, it is clear that what the state gave up is far has far less value than the revenue that, that, they're, that they're getting, the Interior Department should step in. It's their freaking job. But they don't. And they won't. It doesn't matter. You got Deb Hallen sitting there as the, as the Secretary of the Interior Department. You would think with the native person, who, by the way, does have some gaming experience. Deb Hallen was involved in the gaming of, the, of Laguna Pueblo in New Mexico. And she was a part of some of those conflicts between the state of New Mexico and, uh, and her nation. There, is, there are few people who should understand this better than Deb Hallen. But you know who one of the people was that understood this? a former assistant secretary by the name of Kevin Washburn, who happened to be one of the, the judges in the arbitration panel who ruled against the Senecas in favor of the state. But he didn't. He basically said those two other judges who ruled that the, the Senecas need to keep paying to, even today, 
Washburn said that they rewrote the compact. See, the conflict that, that exists specifically right now between the Seneca Nation and the state of New York is that they had a gaming compact for 14 years with an automatic renewal for another seven. Their revenue sharing was only detailed in the, for those 14 years. How much was to be paid? What percentage of the, of the slot revenue was to be paid? And over what years it was paid? And it was 18% for the first two years. It was 22% for the next five years. And it was 25% of the, the final seven years. And that's 25% of what is considered the net slot drop, which is the money before any expenses for the casino are, are, are attached to it. So the state got 25% off the top. All of the expenses, all of the expenses for the entire casino, everything from running, maintaining, upgrading, renovations, you know, everything from serving drinks to, you know, to, to the payments for the machine came out of the Santa Nation. So really, that 25% oftentimes represented not just close to 50%, but 50% of the net revenue of those slot machines, but, but oftentimes over that. But there was no mention of the, of, of the payments in the, in the extension period of that compact. It only went to year 14, through year 14. So the Seneca stopped paying. When the state took them into, into arbitration, two white guys who were put on the, in, in, as judges there, the two white men ruled in favor of the state and said, yeah, you got to keep paying even though there was no language in there. Now, there's, there's a thing called the Four Corners Doctrine of contract law. And that says that you can't make a ruling on a contract or a compact on what you believe is implied. It has to be explicit, not implicit, but explicit. That's what it means. The four, it's got to be within the four corners of the paper. And if it's not there, it's not there. But the two white men on that arbitration man, who were trained lawyers, and they do understand, you know, they understand U.S. legal principle, they invented, they argued that there was ambiguity because there was payments in the first 14 years. So there must be payments for the, for the extension, even though there's no mention of it in the, in the, in the compact. And here's the thing about ambiguity. There's this thing called the canons of statutory construction as it relates to Indian treaties, laws regarding Native people, which there obviously there are plenty, and, and contracts with, with, Native, uh, with Native peoples. And those canons of statutory construction say that if a document has been produced, and of course, many of these, uh, the, the biggest influence on those documents come from, come from white people, lawyers, you know, smart white guys. But if, if there's ambiguity in, those, in, in, in any of that legalese and framework, then the dispute must be, um, be looked at and, and ruled in favor of Native people. And, even that, even, and frankly, even some of that is based on a presupposition of, you know, of inferiority versus superiority. We're just looked at as, yeah, they're not as smart about, about, uh, with this stuff as we are. So if, you know, if they've been lured into signing a piece of paper. And, and some of this is true because, you know, the, the level of legal sophistication and law, sophistication regarding to U.S. law, we, we have been playing catch up. But that's the reason they have these canons of, of statutory construction because they know that through documentation, 
things like leases and any number of other things that Native people were screwed through, that if there was ambiguity, it has to be read through our lens, not through theirs. But these two white guys on the arbitration panel, this again, this is why I say this, this is where critical race theory is not an ancient, you know, um, construct. It, it, is, it is something that is still being imposed today. So those two white guys ignored the canons of, uh, of statutory construction. And in fact, they created in their argument ambiguity where there is no ambiguity. Look, if language is ambiguous, then language is ambiguous. But if it's not there, it's not ambiguous. I mean, it has to be, there has to be something wrong with the language, not the absence of it. Again, Four Corners Doctrine. If it ain't in there, it ain't in there. But these two guys say, well, it should have been in there. Because it's ambiguous. And we are going to ignore the canons of statutory construction. And we're going to rule that, ambi that ambiguity should, be, should favor the state. The ambiguity should favor the state. So this, this is how a racist law like IGRA becomes, establishes more racist practice every step, every step along the way. And when, and when NIGC, when the National Indian Gaming Commission investigated this proprietary interest, uh, you know, uh, argument, they ignored the other arguments. You know, again, they, they ignored the fact that arbitration changed the, the compact. And the question that, that, that we were presenting was, well, shouldn't, since the compact was changed by these two arbitration panelists, shouldn't the Interior Department be review it? And they said, well, we don't want to review it unless the state asks us to. The state's not going to ask you to review it because any common sense would suggest that it would be impossible for the Interior Department to approve a change in the compact that the Senecas didn't agree to. They're supposed to be agreements. They are negotiated agreements with two parties. In this situation, one party says, hell no, we're not paying. And the other party says, no, we bound you to a, a binding arbitration system that favors us, and we're going to make you pay. Well, how does the Interior Department approve a, a revenue-sharing agreement that's not an agreement, that is, that is a revenue-sharing imposition? It can't, and it, and it wouldn't if it had to review it, and it wouldn't have to be Deb Haaland to do it. I mean, anybody could look at this thing and say, yeah, this isn't something that we can approve. And the fact of the matter is, the biggest challenge shouldn't have been, does the state now represent um, having gained a proprietary interest in the casino through this revenue sharing? I mean, you could make that argument, but since you're never going to apply it to a state because the state is allowed to through IGRA, the other question that is a requirement in IGRA is that the nation, with their gaming operation, has to be the primary beneficiary. Well, if 50% or close to it is going to the state, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, even if, you know, frankly, even if the concession and the exclusivity was somehow worth are invaluable. If the state is getting is is an equal 
recipient of the, uh, of the revenue, that violates IGRA's requirement that the nation be the primary beneficiary of the gaming. NIGC didn't investigate that. Why? Because of the racist nature of the enforcement and implementation of the law. Therein lies part of the problem. So, you know, my message here today is to, is to one, explain that critical race theory is something that requires a, uh, a course study, especially for, uh, in, in, the, in the legal profession. But you know what? Everybody should understand the, the, the significance of the intersection of racism and law. And it should be objected to. There should be no laws passed that assert superiority of one people over another. Now, this isn't about condemning affirmative action, because even affirmative action is about trying to correct the superiority that, that, that pre-exists. While, while I think the, the canons of statutory construction are based on an assumption that we are somehow of diminished capacity in, in relating to and understanding some of the legal principles associated with contract law and, and laws and, and treaties. It is not meant to assert superiority. It's meant to balance some of it, to say, look, we're not going to let white folks wordsmith these guys to death and create ambiguous language that only they can, uh, can have favor them. That, I mean, so... Look, it isn't that, that trying to compensate or in, in any way repair some of the damage done by racism, those are not what critical race theory is calling out. What critical race theory is calling out is where racism has played a role in practices, policies, laws, and social constructions. And we should know that. And look, if, if it makes white people feel bad, that's not the intention. The intention is to say, this is a problem. And look, white privilege is real. And part of what we need as far as native people and other people of color, we need a significant number or percentage of that population that enjoys white privilege to use that privilege to correct this problem to face this problem. Look, I know there, um, there, there are laws all over the country now banning critical race theory being taught in high school, and it's never been taught in high school. This is part of the problem. This is, this is what has to be fixed. So, look, we need to identify it as the victims of critical race theory. But we also have to explain it to our allies, whoever they might be, you know, and look, we expect more allyship through other peoples of color. Don't always get it, but we expect it. But we also know that a certain percentage of white folks, we hope anyway, that they will use their privilege to affect change. Look, I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.